So if a lighting director says, I need 20 minutes or it's not going to look good, I respect their craft because I know how long it takes. All right, then I'm getting, I'm getting more comfortable. I can sit on my leg like I've done my entire life. Yeah. And then my leg. <laughs> this is literally what I do every day. Get your Jeopardy pen out. This is how you ring in. This is how you can ring in. God help me. Okay, sorry. Yeah, that so, really I mean, cool. I'm, I'm certainly not a natural uh, interviewer or anything like that, but mm -hmm. it's fun to do. And uh, I've done a couple for no good reason other than that I wanted to with a... Uh, and, and it's good practice too, just to have like to listen to dialogue and really, you know, it's it. there's nothing better about an interview than working on your own listening skills. Yeah. Because that's what I think a lot of interviewers don't do very well, especially if they have to go in with... Uh, an agenda of like five questions. Okay, yeah. I learned this quickly when I worked for PBS is like, if you have questions you have to hit and after the first question, someone admits to a crime or something horrible and then you're like, <laughs> okay, great. So where were you born? It's like, you didn't even listen to what like the, the, the morsel is that you should like really continue with and, and it's, it's an art. It is an art actually, for sure. Yeah, and uh, I think for somebody like me who doesn't have the best attention span at all times, this <laughs> this is like this creates like a false context where I yes. I really have to force myself to listen more than I naturally might. It's like um, what's his name from Saturday Night Live, Dieter. Oh my God, what an old reference from Sprocket. Yeah. Like your story has become tiresome. Exactly. And you just dance and leave the room. <laughs> yeah, now's the time when we dance. Yeah. Um, so how's your day? today specifically it was, well today today was interesting because we're having a lot of changes with the show like getting geared up for season 39 mm -hmm. we're now doing um all simultaneously the regular syndicated show celebrity jeopardy second chances which is a tournament where we bring back people who we felt almost was at the uh, at the precipice of winning and mm -hmm. they didn't so we're bringing uh 18 of them back and then right after that tournament is over, we go right into the Tournament of Champions. So it's like, there's so much stuff happening in the next two months. It's exciting, it's daunting, but um, it, I mean, ABC announced Celebrity Jeopardy a couple months ago and we had no idea. Sony had no idea and Jeopardy didn't. ABC oh, said okay. 13 one hour episodes of Celebrity Jeopardy and we were like, what? So that's Why? one way to do things, you know, just announce it and then uh, force it to happen. Do, I mean, do yeah. I think we should? A hundred percent, because uh, the success of Celebrity Wheel of Fortune is doing so well in prime time. They're like, they're sister shows, so why not do Celebrity Jeopardy? The only difference is, you know, with um, Wheel of Fortune, you know, you're taking a half hour format into an hour, so you have to expand it. Mm -hmm. So Wheel of Fortune is just like adding more games. We have to figure out, are we going to do triple Jeopardy? Is there going to be two rounds of single Jeopardy? Like, how do you make a half hour an hour? Yeah, and we okay. and we didn't want to do two half hour married together, so it would be three celebrities for one full hour playing. Um, so it, you know, it, for thirteen episodes, if we split them into twenty six, that's twenty six times three. That number of celebrities, they're like, we can't possibly get seventy. Yeah, whatever the math is, seventy eight or seventy four celebrities. It's easier to just get, you know, thirty six. You know, three per or thirty nine. I'm not, I'm not good at math today. Yeah. So you were mostly interviewing potential clients or guests or uh, contestants yes. today? Or so you were working today as a team? Was 
like oh i'm sorry today was mostly uh work from home so it was a lot of meetings and a lot of emails and stuff but yesterday we had our very first live audition because they haven't had live auditions in like two and a half years because of the pandemic so mm. it was like it was in a mm. hotel in los angeles we had four sessions of 12 people each so we were able to bang through 50 potential contestants pretty quickly um do I think live is better than Zoom? No, Zoom is more convenient. I think people are more relaxed because they're home. I think if you're coming, and again, I was in a hotel where no one was wearing masks except our room. Everybody was masked. So it was a really, I think that kind of adds to the psychology of it too, where at home, you can feel free to like show your whole face and do this. And now you're showing up yeah. and you're trying to emote uh, while you're playing with a mask over you. So it's mm. it's... It's hard to get a good set. I mean, you know, people are smart because you can hear them, but you don't really, you can't see the full face of emotion. And I, you know, it's interesting. I talked to so many people who are um, doctors and lawyers and, and stuff too. And it's like everyone, especially with a lawyer, I've learned terrible to try to do a case with, with a jury in masks. You can't tell what they're thinking. You can't see yeah, any yeah. expression of their faces except their eyes. Um, so, you know, everybody had their thing, but no, but no normal day when I'm at, uh the office it's a lot it's a lot of zoom when we're not in actual production because we go back in production in uh august 1st is when we have our first taping so this is this is what's considered the downtime but in normal times as soon as we wrap the show then we start flying all over the country so i haven't done this yet we go to 16 different cities uh, from you know vegas to chicago to washington like the major ones to try to get live auditions because then you can go through like hundreds of people at a time instead of nine in an hour so yeah so it's it's just it's a different way to work i mean we need contestants so that's the whole point of the job um but yeah it's that's that's my typical work day which is not typical it depends it depends what the day yeah. is oh that's interesting yeah um i was wondering like uh a couple things i didn't expect to talk about work so soon but that's, okay, that's all right that's fine yeah, it's nice it's nice so i was wondering like technically what your job is called and then also the second part of my question well the th there's two more parts you know what is the most important element of that job and then um when you were in eighth grade because i teach eighth grade now eighth grade, okay to, to what extent did you envision this type of future for yourself and, uh, and how okay. accurate or inaccurate were you Okay. Uh, first thing, my job, the title of my job is contestant producer. And what a contestant producer does is they deal primarily with the well-being of a playing contestant on a game show, meaning everything from making sure they understand the rules, making sure they understand, uh, especially because I started during COVID, about uh, pre-flight uh, COVID testing, making sure it's a PCR and not and, uh, whatever other samples there used to be back then. And then when they're actually at the stage is to guide them through the process of playing Jeopardy. And, you know, some people are there for only one show and they lose and some are there forever. I mean, this is the season where we've had these massive mega champions, which no one saw coming. And it was just really, really fortunate and lucky. But my job is to here's the phrase I use all the time with a contestant. I said, my job is to get you on the show. Your job is to stay on it. I can't help you. You're here because of your brains, but I cannot help you stay on that stage. And, and that's the simplest way for them to completely absorb that it's like, I'm fortunate that you, John, got me on the show and now I have to prove myself that I'm worthy to do it. Um, I also let think- Let me interrupt quickly. Sure, go ahead. Are you part of the selection process 
as far as like picking who's going to actually get there? Yes. So what happens is, and this isn't revealing anything that the general public doesn't know, mm -hmm. with the process of Jeopardy, okay, as opposed to other shows that I've worked on, if someone says, we need a wacky family from uh, New Jersey that's Italian, then I know specifically who I'm looking for. Jeopardy is very test-based. So yeah. I don't have to go out and look for people. People have to go to the Jeopardy.com website, take the anytime test, and if they pass, because there's a, a certain level internally of what a good score is or an eligible score. And then they go through, you know, you do it the first time because you're by yourself taking it. If you pass that, then we test you again and we watch you take the test with like 15 other people on a Zoom. Hmm. Reason being, we don't know if the first time you took the test, you cheated the entire time. <laughs> you know, you can come, it's a 50 question test. If you come back and you score a 50, I'm impressed with your brain, but I'm also super skeptical. It's like, how did you get all of them right? Yeah, then we make yeah. you do another test of 50 questions, different questions, and see how you do, because we're, we're watching you then. We know no one's in the room with you. We know you're not going on Google because you're we're watching. we're actually physically watching you take the test in real time, all 15 of you. Then if you pass that, then you meet somebody like me, a contestant producer, and we test actually playing the game. Nine people in the room will play three games of Jeopardy, three people against each other. There's a, a fake, uh, uh, or not fake, but it's a simulated board. Mm -hmm. They would sit there with their pens. They would ring in. I would call on them. They would answer. They do Q&A, answering in the form of a question. So it's a, very, it's a very precise science of how we do it. And then when it comes down to it, all of my background from PBS was really helpful because the, the goal of the show is to show a good cross uh, section of the country. Uh, th maybe, maybe on a typical show, it's three different jobs, three different states that people are from. Um, maybe there's a common bond depending what it is, but all of these people need to be worthy enough to play the game. So it's a lot of balancing. It's a lot of juggling. It's a lot of, uh, uh, puzzle piecing as we say to people who, who don't understand our world, that it's a lot of stuff that we take into consideration. We see about 3000 people a year. We only have slots for 400. So they have to do the math and they have to bring their best energy and their smarts because it's super competitive. What I just learned this week, weirdly enough, is that it is easier to get into Harvard University than it is to get on Jeopardy. And I think when I say this to people, it, it scares them, yeah, but it should, also, it should also uh, build a fire in their belly to be like, I, I want this really bad. So that's, that's the first part. Does personality count? Personality does help. I think I think if someone has a really quirky story or if they react to something or if they're like, you know, because I see this all the time, almost every day on stage where someone takes a guess and the guess usually is right. So we always say to them, we're like, look, you're not actors. We're not asking you to, for every single, if you get something right, you're putting your hands in the air. If you get something wrong, you're like, oh, shut. We don't need that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like naturally react. Oh, I got that. Oh, wow. We had, a, we had a champion, Matea Roach, who's from a uh, 23-year-old from Canada. And what was interesting about her is that I, although she had made, she had no reference to what I was talking about because she's young, is, and you would know this because DVDs, when you would find the DVD commentary, yeah. you play the audio track, that's what she was all the time. Everything in her <laughs> head came out of her mouth. Okay. Where she would bet on something and then she'd get it right and she's like, I should have had double. <laughs> she would just say it meanwhile it's like we don't need to hear your inside voice but that's what made her really unique you know there there were times when she beat the other two contestants during the credit she would turn and she's like commendable job like she would just say it to them <laughs> and we're like she had no censor but i actually like that about yeah. her um so 
To conclude, a contestant producer is in charge of the well-being of a contestant. On every single game show, you have the set design, the lighting, the music, the host, the content, the contestants. If you any of those elements can exist to an extent if you if you minimize them, you don't have a show without the people. So that's why I feel that our job and our department is the most vital because we're we keep the lifeblood of the show going. And there are shows that I've worked on where the upper management doesn't understand that. And, and sometimes you, you butt heads a lot, but it's like, I'm, pro I'm providing you the major cog in the machine. So you got to give us a little leeway here. So for those that embrace what contestant producers do, it's great. And, and for anyone who's, who's watching this, even if it's just you, yeah, there's a major difference between casting producing and contestant producing casting is about quantity we need a thousand people for this season mm, so they just yeah. start scouring contestant is a very specific skill it's after you find the thousand people now i have to produce these people for the stage to make it work to make them have fun to make them win to make them lose well not make them lose but you know make them do the best that they possibly yeah. can and that's my job and i always i've always been a people person which leads me to the third part of the question like, did I know that this is what I was destined to do, I guess, is how you kind of phrased it. Um, when I was younger, my mother and father always said to me, we knew you were going to do something having to do with like directing and producing, because when you were younger, you would take our metal party chairs, write my last name on the back of it with marker, <laughs> which of course they could never wipe off of it. And then I would set up the chairs on the front lawn, invite all of the kids from the neighborhood, and I would just start bossing them around. This is what we're going to do. We're going to we're going to do a pretend to do a move, a murder mystery movie, or we're going to ride bikes and one person's going to fall over. Everything was always morbid and death. I, I was obsessed with Agatha Christie as a kid. Mm -hmm. So I loved those books. And so I always wanted to write murder mysteries, which was a track I did not go into at all. But I think I always knew that I wanted something where I was in, in a good way in control to kind of like guide people to have fun. That's, that's how I always looked at it. And then as I started to hone my skills in college, because I went to college wanting to be an actor, and then my professor in my very first monologue class said in front of a group of students, in 30 years, I have never met a student more devoid of emotion as an actor. And the next day I went to the, the dean or the bursar's office, whatever it was called, and I said, get me out of this track. I don't wanna be in it anymore. And they said, well, actually we're doing something called video arts. Are you interested in that? And that day I moved over. Oh my gosh. Now I'll preface this by saying before I went to college, I worked as an intern at a local cable station. So I was pulling cables. I was able to edit. So like I enjoyed that, but I don't think I really embraced it at the moment yeah. until that professor, which I actually thank him for giving me my career in the worst possible way is I was so disillusioned by like, you're not an actor. He might have saved you, yeah, he might have saved you a ton of time. I think I think he saved me. He saved me a lot of headache, a lot mm. of rejection, a lot of because I know what actors go through too. Mm. And then all of a sudden I just found this love of I like to create, I like to edit, I like to write, I like to direct, I like to, you know, and, and that was cool about the college experience is that we were taught, you know, on a set, say there's like 12 different people that produce something that each week in the semester we would rotate positions so one week i would be a camera person next week i would do sound third week i'd write 
which helps me as a producer to understand and empathize what everybody else does on the set. Yeah. So if a lighting director says, I need 20 minutes or it's not going to look good, I respect their craft because I know how long it takes. You know, and then, okay, if it's going to take you 20 minutes, then we'll figure out something else during the 20 minutes. And then hopefully everything looks great. So, yeah, I think I always knew internally that this is what I wanted to do. Um, yeah, and have been doing it for now literally 30 years. Because I started in 1992 producing, and now it's 2022. I did the math. Yeah. All right. 30 years. No. Um, were, there, were there moments along that 30-year path where you thought... It, it was going to not work out or possibly be a disaster or possibly go in a very different, very different direction. Or Every single day. I'm just like, what am I doing? I don't want to do this. And then you have these moments of joy or these moments of light where you're like, no, I'm in the right place. It, it took me a long time to actually find myself as a producer until I started working with clients and clients which are which equate to like what a contestant is now because it's a stranger to me and I have to guide them through the process so I think uh my first job out of college was in PBS so it was uh, the local public television station in New Jersey and that was the greatest training ground because it was a non-union shop you could touch equipment you can edit you can do whatever so that's where I really honed the skills of not only what I wanted to do as a producer but also dealing with other people who had the money to pay for it who relied on me to guide them to get the best product. So I think that was always there. My mentor who started me in PBS always said, specifically the, the foundation of PBS is to tell other people's stories. It's not about us, it's about you. And my first day on the job, she took me to lunch. And then outside of the restaurant, there was a four um, apartment building across the street. And she said, here's your first assignment. If, you're, if you can get into the building, try to meet the four people and just explain who you are and what you're doing because you're going to find out that everybody has a story. Everybody has something to tell. They might be boring as hell, but you don't know. I met one woman who was incredibly quiet, incredibly shy, hunched over, old, and I just asked her like one or two questions and I found out that she and her husband for 38 years adopted handicapped children to get them to adapt to real society. Hmm. And I'm like, you would never know, you would think this was an older woman in the supermarket buying peaches or whatever. And it's like, she has a fascinating background. So I think because of that, it's, it's made me more fascinated by people. And I think working with clients, I always wanna know where they come from, why they chose this path. Even when I interview people now, it's always like, how did you get to do what you wanted to do? Did you know when you were a kid? Just like you're asking me, you know, uh, um, some jobs, people are like, I never thought I would be in this industry. I think I'm one of very rare, uh, uh, a rare breed of those that stayed focused as to what they wanted to do and pursued it and kept going. So I think that was the foundation to realize that in a world, a pretty, and where I live now in Los Angeles, it's, it's a pretty selfish city. Hmm. And that's where I felt like I rose above other people because I, I have the PBS foundation I'm always like, it's not about me. It's about your story. I just happen to be the conduit to get the information, but I want to talk to you. So I think the whole thing with contestants is I want to know more about people. I want to know what makes you tick, what makes you laugh, what makes you cry, or something that can tie into the show. And I'm like, maybe that's the story you should talk about. You know, if, if someone's wearing a pin and I go, oh, that pin's really cool. They're like, 
well, this was my grandmother's. I said, oh, what, what, why are you, why are you, you know, is your grandmother with us? No, she passed away. Why, why are you wearing her pin? Well, because she and I used to watch Jeopardy. And I'm like, well, there's, that's the story. Yeah. So it's, and like I said to you in the beginning of the interview, it's about listening. It's about really latching on to listen to the words that people say, and that will help you form the story or form the, the, the through line or whatever you're going to do with that contestant. Because nowadays, game show contestants is not just about playing. You want to get to know them, too. You know, with, with Jeopardy specifically, you know, I, I've learned this firsthand as the person who's in charge of all the on-camera interviews is that that's the section of the show that everybody goes to the bathroom, including my own father. Yeah. When I was home during the holiday break, <laughs> he would get up and I'm like, Dad, this is the part that I produced. Yeah, but I still have to go to the bathroom for the first commercial break. Yeah. You can't go before the show? No. <laughs> again it goes to habit and it goes to what you're used to so yeah it's it's interesting i mean i've worked on a ton of other shows besides jeopardy jeopardy's current one that i'm on and i mean it's it's a massive show i mean it's worldwide known and it's it's very disconcerting on days because people keep reminding me they're like we have 12 million people a night watch mm. what i do they're they're not thinking about me i'm just saying i'm thinking about me and it's it's a crazy impact that you have on people. And with social media, now you know you have an impact because yeah. Jeopardy fans are rabid and they will talk about anything about what this person's wearing, how they said that wrong. There was a spelling mistake the other night. That became a whole thing. Where it's are like there, are there any uh, are there any famous are there any Jeopardy fans that have reached infamy or that are on the radar of the Jeopardy crew? Well, there's, a, I mean, there's a group Super of people fans. that create a blog called Buzzer Blog, and it's specifically mm -hmm. regarding Jeopardy. So we've, I think we've had one or two contestants from Buzzer Blog who, who legally passed the test and were yeah. eligible. It had nothing to do with any other way of getting on. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, our, our fans, we're, the show itself right now is obsessed with a woman who I think her Twitter handle is, oh, it went right out of my head. She, what she is, she's a lunch lady in Wisconsin who does fashion reviews on what the contestants wear. <laughs> and the contestants follow her because they're obsessed with what she says. You know, it's like this woman who nobody knows, who probably is not Jeopardy material, is just like, I love the show and I love that sweater that you're wearing or I love yeah. that Ken wear. And, and she'll put up montages of like, here's everything Maya wore this week. Now let's compare. She moved this jacket. She moved this scarf to the, and it's like, people are obsessed with certain things yeah. about the show. Um, we've had two incidences, one that was very recent, um, which again, it's a judging thing. So I can't, I can't weigh in on it, but I, I certainly have an opinion that um, there was a, a contestant a couple of weeks ago where the final answer was Harriet Tubman. And she did not finish Tubman in time. I think she spelled T-U-B-M-A and then like a portion of the N and she was deemed incorrect. So it, it, that sent a whole, you know, judges have to make their decisions for some reason. Me personally off record, which you don't have to edit this out. It's like yeah. my reaction was, this was an African-American woman who clearly knows who Harriet Tubman is and was eliminated because they couldn't make out the N. Yeah. And I felt in the moment on stage, because we shoot things like two and a half months before it airs, I'm like, this is going to get a lot of reaction on TV and from our viewers. And it did. The other unfortunate thing is that this was a Friday episode right before Juneteenth. And it was an African-American woman who was told no. 
And because she got it wrong, she was supposed to win and she didn't. So uh, it's like, then you start to, you, you, again, it's above my pay grade. I'm staying out of it. But as a viewer, I can understand where people are like, wait a minute. You know what I mean? And it's, and I'm not even saying it's a, it's a, an African-American thing, a white thing, a, you know, a gay yeah. thing, anything like that. It just happened. The circumstance presented itself that it was like, Ooh, this is really unfortunate. And it wasn't a, it wasn't a Sean Connery situation no. where, where the bottom half <laughs> revealed no, right. the rest and, of and the then it drew another photo. I know. <laughs> Brilliant. And you know, little, little tidbit, you know, that, um, I don't remember the order. I think Alex Trebek passed away right before Sean Connery or Sean Connery died right before Alex Trebek. Mm. It was like a little too close to home with the yeah. SNL thing. Um, but we always had people write into us saying they wanted, because um, they're still making a decision as to who's going to be the host. You know, everyone's going through, again, not my yeah. monkey, not my zoo. Um, but people were teasing. They're like, we should just get Will Ferrell to host. Yeah, but then I, I don't think people be. would take it seriously at all, <laughs> including Will Ferrell. But well, hopefully he could be on the uh, on the celebrity week. Celebrity one, yeah. Or we or we always thought they uh, they had mentioned a couple of years ago they did a uh, an April Fool's episode. Yeah, where Alex hosted Wheel of Fortune and Pat Sajak hosted Jeopardy, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. Um, but you never know. You don't know what can happen. Yeah, I mean, Will Ferrell should at least, he should at least do, like, uh, the final Jeopardy round for the Celebrity Week or something. Or be a clue. Or, yeah, like yeah, the, yeah. Or, or maybe there's a category, because this is the brilliant thing about the writers, and there's a reason why uh, when we just won uh, this past weekend that we won the Daytime Emmy for Best Game Show, I was sitting next to Billy Weiss, who's one of the head writers, and it was his 13th Emmy. He's been there for a mm -hmm. long time, but, I mean, their, their content is brilliant. What they come up with is great. The The latest thing that, that really made me laugh a lot is there was a category where they had Johnny Gilbert, our announcer, uh, do rap lyrics. And the contestants had to figure out who was the artist. But to hear this 90-something, yeah. 95-96-year-old <laughs> man, you know, quoting like Snoop Dogg and Cardi B lyrics, it's like, this is classic. And, it, you know, and we want, to, we want to try to keep it current. We want to try to keep it fun. And, um, you know, there's there's so much i think i did the math the other day that since the show's been on the air the yeah. uh content writers have written over three hundred thousand questions for jeopardy that's insane yeah that's amazing Unbelievable. i'm sure it's a world record somewhere but yeah it's just really cool i mean i i keep talking in circles but i think I, it, it's about it's about the love of people and it's about the love of what i do and i've been doing it for 30 years i don't want to stop yet i'm not that tired you know, everyone's jaded at some point, but I always think mm. it's, um, I, I've spent an entire <clears throat> career in Los Angeles doing a bunch of different shows like first season or concept or pilot now joining a legacy show that like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It's been yeah. the same thing for 38 years. It's sometimes nice towards the end of someone's career, or at least at the highlight of my career is to just do something where I know exactly what's expected of me every day. And that's, that's a little comforting. And was it a uh, was it a tough learning curve when you started this position, or did you pick it up quickly? No, I think. Well, the interesting thing about Jeopardy, starting during a pandemic, I had a job interview on a Thursday, and literally Friday morning, I was offered the job, saying, "Hey, mm -hmm. how soon can you start?" And I'm like, "It's Labor Day. Can I start the day after?" And they said, "Yes. Just so you know, your first day will be on set with Alex Trebek." Yeah. And I was just like, and, and then <laughs> where it hit me, where I'm like, "What is happening?" Yeah. Um. The very interesting, the very cool thing and the very sad thing is that at least I was fortunate to work with Alex side by side for seven weeks before he passed. So it was, 
definitely moments I will never, ever forget. And to go through mourning as the new guy with people who have known him for 38 years, it yeah, was yeah, very yeah. disconcerting to me because it's like, I'm the new person on the block. But I, but I do remember this when I first got the job and I told uh, uh, dad about the job. He said, Alex is sick. If you can say a little prayer for him every day, he doesn't have to know about it. And I'm like, you know what? This is a great idea because I, like I said, I create the interview. So I have these cards that I have to go present to Alex. And Alex wasn't at the podium. So when I would go up there, I would say like a very, very quick prayer. I happened to have mentioned this when we had the um, the Zoom memorial for him. And I mean, people were crying and upset enough. And then my story just put everybody over the edge. And I thought, mm. not a good sign as the, as the new guy to like make everyone fall apart. Yeah. But I'm like, I just wanted to let you know that I've been, a my father has been a fan of the show and I've been a fan of the show. So it was just a little something that nobody knew about that made, that gave my dad some pause and me a little pause. So it, you know, just, it felt good to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. And, uh, it's been an interesting two it, years. It seemed like, it seemed right. like he was one of the most beloved uh, people in the, in the whole, in the whole TV industry, regardless of genre. And would you say that was accurate? Because that's, that's like kind of the common perception. It's exact. it's a, the person that I knew and I worked with for a short time is exactly the person that you can imagine. Yeah. I, I remember um, his book was very telling to me because I didn't even know, it. I didn't read the whole book, um, that he said, I want my last day on earth, and I'm paraphrasing, obviously, I want my last day at earth on earth to be on a swing he had a swing in his backyard that was like a hundred years old that he refurbished he was very into woodworking and and refurbishing things so he said the very last day i just want to sit with people who feel very special to me and just swing for a little bit and then go to sleep wow. and the day he died i think he knew and he invited a bunch of uh, like very few of his close friends from jeopardy and his family Mm. and um got on the swing oh my god had each person sit on the swing with him take a final photo and then he said i'm tired everybody i'm gonna go lay down he went into his bed and he passed away which i just thought was so beautiful and very um uh prophetic and 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 lyrical and and poetic wherever where you look at it it's like he went out on his terms doing exactly what he was or exactly how he wanted to go and, and that is the last chapter of the book, mm. which is crazy. So it's like, it's not like he predicted it, but he knew it's like, if I'm this sick, I want to do what I said I wanted to do. And he went out, you know, like Frank Sinatra said, he did it his way. Yeah. That's it. Done. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. It was really beautiful. Very sad, but very beautiful. Is there anybody, uh, I'm just going to jump a little bit. Is there anybody sure. that you met that has like some sort of special personality or talent uh be it famous or otherwise that that uh in, in like enlightened you in some way or inspired you in some way you know that you've had like some firsthand contact with my um my closest friend here who's who was actually my contestant producer partner edward ruiz mm. um i met him on a nickelodeon show um and and the reason many reasons i took the show one it was because it's shot in hawaii and i'm like okay i don't even know what is <laughs> happening right now that you're paying me to go to hawaii and he was the other contestant producer he worked on the season before i remember i didn't know him at all 
you know, when you meet new people in Hollywood, it's like, oh, go on Facebook, see how many people we know together. We had like 85 friends in common. Yeah. How have we not worked with each other? So we go, I meet him in Hawaii. The very first words out of his mouth is, are you sure you want to do this? And I thought, this is your welcome <laughs> to the show. And we immediately became fast friends. I've been like very, very close for years. The reason why I'm mentioning him is because he has, all I can say is he has a gift. When he was a child, everybody thought he had several um, imaginary friends, but he actually could see dead people and he can see the spirits and he can see your guides around you. And when we were in Hawaii, he, we were driving to one place and he's like, because I need to tell you something. I don't know how it's going to, uh, how you're going to absorb it, but one of your guides is next to you. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. And he's like, I just want to pull over for a second because she needs to tell you something. And I'm like, okay, it's a she. She goes, it's an, I see an older woman. I see red hair. And I'm like, oh my God, it's, it's my grandmother. You know, it's, it's talking about that. And then he mentioned my friend Kate who had passed away that he said, I believe Kate is trying to tell you to look into the drawer of the desk that she left in your house. And I was like, I, then my mind was blown. Cause I'm like, mm. she left two pieces of furniture in my house in Mount Laurel. And one was a desk. But when I moved out, I guess the new tenants came in through the desk out. So I have no, there's no conclusion there, mm. but she was trying to say, from beyond, there's something in the desk that you need to look for. So, you know, at first you're skeptical and it's like, okay, is this some kind of like, some kind of shyster move where it's like, you're trying to get information, but I've seen him read other people and I've seen like the wind get knocked out of people. Mm. And so that, so to answer your question, it's like someone who I've met who has a profound gift that really affected me because it's like, you know, you go through life and it's like, we're just trying to figure out how to get through this life. And he knows a different life and from a really different perspective. So it like, it made me very much appreciate my time on earth and appreciate the fact that maybe there really, really is life after death. And that was comforting to me. And to know that during another show where he, where I was eating at the, at the, at the restaurant or at the, at the commissary, I was eating pasta really quick. And Edward said to me, he's like, your grandmother's behind you saying, slow down. <laughs> and I see her and he goes, did she ever wear an apron? And then, and then my blood ran cold because grandma would always wear, you know, the apron when she cooked. And I'm like, I never told him about my grandmother. I never showed a photo, nothing. It's like, how do you have this gift? And he says, it's been, it's been his greatest gift and his biggest pain his entire life. Because he goes, I can go into a room of 100 people. You see 100 people. I see 700 people. It's overwhelming because I not only see them, but I see their guides around them. It's, it's insane. And, and I will give you uh, a story. Most recently, we were at um, an Emmy event for, for a severance of all shows that we were talking about. And uh, that's the first time that, that uh, Edward met Karina, who's my current contestant producer at Jeopardy. Mm -hmm. And he immediately looked at Karina and he said, oh, I need to, you know, he's like, I need to, and he doesn't do this all the time. It's not like his gimmick. He's like, oh, nice to meet you. Oh, God, I'm a dead person. Yeah. But he said to her, he goes, I, he goes, there's a woman. I see a woman who has like longer brown hair, who's reaching out to you for a hug. And, and Karina's like, I don't know anybody like that. Because again, he's like, I see somebody who, who's dead, who's doing this to you. And she's like, I, I don't know who this is. He goes, could it be like your mom or something? She's like, no, my mom is fine. My mom's home. Her mom died while we were at Severance. 
the next morning, Karina's like, I need to go home. My mother died. And I'm, and, and then again, my blood ran cold and I called Edward and I'm like, I don't know what you did because she's like, I'm convinced that was my mom just trying to say goodbye and just trying mm. to do something. And so it was like, it was very disconcerting and very, um, it was intense. It was intense. And that's an interesting location for something like that to happen. Yeah. Right. At the severance. Um, did you enjoy severance? Is that Karina that night, she's like the only thing I want to do. And of course she didn't even know that her, her mom passed away until like she got yeah, home. Yeah. But she said, all I want to Sorry do is meet that. Adam Scott. All I want to do is meet Adam Scott. She's like, I loved, I loved him from Parks and Rec. And then Edward and I go, you're going to meet him. And she's like, what do you mean? <laughs> I'm like, we both worked with him. What? Yes, we worked. And then we met him and he was like, oh my God, what are you doing here? And then we introduced him to Karina and it was like, it made her life. It was great. And then unfortunately, you know, you have this high, high and this low, yeah, low. Yeah, high, for sure. Right back to back. And it was, you know, it's a lot. There's been a lot of strange things happening here. And right how here. was that? How was that event? Just real it quick. It was great. That was really cool because I really liked the show. When you go to these Emmy FYCs, and FYC stands for For Your Consideration, mm -hmm. where Emmy voters go to see a screening of an episode, the cast comes out to discuss, and then there's like a party or whatever. But I mean, the real point of it is to see a show either you love, respect, or have never seen before and make a very conscious decision, just like any kind of voting. It's yeah. like, is this worthy of a vote for whatever they're up for? Is it best show, best acting, best whatever? You know, and the Academy is really cool because this, I mean, this year was more hybrid. Some things were online, some things were live, but there were 230 FYCs this year oh, between okay. March and June. It was insane. It was every single night. I didn't go to all of them. And who gets to go to those? Anyone who is an Academy member of the, of the uh, Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, the Emmys, otherwise. And are they, are they pay? Or they, is there like a, yeah, you have to, you have to get the membership by, by producing. I think I could have this wrong. I think it's 150 hours of broadcast television. Mm. That's at least the, the first thing to get you in. Mm. And, and what was really interesting for me is that the first year I lived here, I did let's make a deal, which was 195 episodes so <laughs> yeah. within a year. I was eligible to become a member. As opposed to someone who works on a show that's only six episodes, they yeah, 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 for sure. Never be a member until they yeah. get. So anyone who works on a on a syndicated show or a strip show, as we say, five days a week, it's like, yeah. get membership. Why not? It's two hundred dollars a year. You get to go to the Emmys. You get all these parties, free yeah, alcohol, yeah. And food. It pays for itself after like two events. Oh, so all those events are are just the only cost is your membership. Correct. I and, mean, you, uh, pay the, you pay 200 for the year. It covers you for the entire year. And then you go to all the events. They're usually run by the network. So it's not a television Academy sanctioned yeah. event. So they pay for all the stuff. You know, you, again, it's really interesting <laughs> because members of any organization, I guess the older members are like, there's no food. I'm not going. <laughs> it's like, no, no, you need to go to see the shit. They're like, no, there's no, it's no, a it's just the same with the same with teachers. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, wait, I, I'm sorry. They're only serving dessert. Not interested. I'm not voting for them either. And I'm like, <laughs> really? But now that I've been doing it for so long, I'm starting to get in the thing where it's like, just dessert. And I'm, I'm like, <laughs> I'll vote for them, but I don't have to go to the whole event. You know um, I mean? Is there they've been really creative ones too? Yeah. Really surprise elements. I think, of all the years that I've gone, the one that like really was the most surprising was the third season of American Horror Story, which was all about witches. So it was called Coven. Um, they had a small event. It was only 100 people. So you had to get into a lottery. And I was fortunate enough to get in. 
And, you know, they played the episode, the cast came out, but then the surprise element is they told Jessica Lange to stay on stage. She stayed, the rest of the cast came down and sat in the audience and they pushed a piano out and from behind the, you know, behind the curtain, very dramatic was Stevie Nicks. Mm. So Stevie Nicks came out, sat down and performed the song that she did on American Horror Story to Jessica Lange live as we watched it. And I'm like, what, like you don't, it's so surreal that you're like, what is happening? Where are Mm. we? right now but you have those little those little special moments there was uh, a live thing for the uh for hairspray when they did hairspray live on nbc yeah jennifer hudson performed right after she won the oscar that was awesome there was a whole night with lizzo this year where because she has a, a reality show on tv all about big you know big girls because she was did a yeah. reality show about backup dancers that she needed for her tour okay so you have these moments where you get to meet major major people um it's very hollywood it is very Hollywood, but it's fun. I, I mean, you live here, so you might as well embrace it. Yeah, that's cool. And how about in like 30 seconds or less, uh, anything from Severance, anyone or any moments that you thought was really great or, I, or, from, or from the Severance event, either way? Patricia Arquette is the coolest person I've ever met. She's so laid back. She curses like a sailor. Her character in the show is amazing. And the surprise guest who they said was not going to be there was John Totoro. And I love John Totoro. I just yeah, think he's great. I would have passed out if Christopher Walken was there, but he wasn't. <laughs> yeah. But the great thing is, is that John Totoro told, all he did was tell dirty stories about Christopher Walken. <laughs> it's like, you know, if they say, okay, you need to be really upset in this scene. He goes, well, I don't, I don't know how to be upset. He goes, oh, I know my kids get upset when I throw my legs over my head and I fart. <laughs> maybe I'll just do that. And then he would do it. And they're like, what are yeah. you doing? <laughs> he's like this is the person that christopher walken has always been he's been a jokester he's a great actor amazing iconic voice and yeah. it's kind of it's kind of fun to go to these events to hear the behind the scenes stories more about okay my character thought this because of blah 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 it's like oh no for this intense scene we had you know we had a burrito party backstage before we came out because we knew there was going to be a lot of uh crying so we wanted something mm. that made us happy yeah, um, interesting yeah severance is great it's it's so intense and very and most of the audience was very confused by it mm, which i don't really? think i have fully figured out which i like that i don't have it fully figured oh. out to be honest they were um, very confused and it was shot it. in jersey did you know that yeah yeah i'm gonna go visit home that place one day yeah i'm gonna yeah. go i'm gonna go take a little tour well, i mean they're probably gonna go back soon so i should find out yeah for sure show up on set yeah any, any anything you can uh, adam scott please yeah, yeah hook me up <laughs> tell him john barra is here he knows you're yeah. right <laughs> He's or as Christopher Walker would say, John Barra. Yes. Um, I'm going to go to a list now. I'm going to okay. read. I'm going to read a couple like rapid fire questions. Oh, oh I love these. I feel Is like I'm right? or something. Um, and then you can go as long as you want. And okay. uh, I'll try to keep it brief. So I'm going to start with a question from my friend Lou because I texted okay. him this morning. I didn't okay. tell him why. Hi, Lou. He's saying this. <laughs> yeah. He will eventually. And uh, actually, I'm going to ask you two from him, and then you pick the one you want. Okay. Paul. Or both. Uh, so the first one is, if you could produce anything, a true passion project, what would you like to do? And that's question number one. I thought that was interesting. And then uh, who's the uh, who's the biggest prick or the most difficult talent you have worked with? Even if you don't want to give a name, you could just tell a story. <laughs> and that's, well, I, I, feel I, free to pass on that one if you want. Oh, God, there's a lot of pricks. <laughs> As, as as there are more great people than there are pricks, but yeah. there are definitely pricks because it's it's a very egocentric town. It's very micromanaged. It's very you know, and I think right now the industry is 
getting worse again because the micromanagers mm-hmm. lost control of all their workers because everyone's at home. And now when we're able to come into the office, it's like, oh no, they're reborn again uh, and become more psychotic. When you say micromanager, are you talking like uh, like Barry, like Barry style? You know, the HBO show Barry? Yeah. You know, the, uh, his girlfriend and, and her assistants? You mean like oh, that type of micromanager? Well, first of all, that's very exaggerated, but it's not that yeah. far okay. off from the truth. And she, and she actually was not necessarily my favorite character, but has become my favorite character same, because same. her acting ability of her mental breakdown is great and that last episode is insane <laughs> if you haven't seen it it's, it's great i saw it yeah it, it puts her in a t- she's taking mm-hmm. a totally different direction now yeah christina called that ahead of time by the way she christina called the whole thing like two episodes in advance that's so. interesting very perceptive um who is not a prick yeah. is uh uh henry winkler one of the nicest people ever on earth and mm. everybody will say that okay now i have to think about the pricks oh well <laughs> What was really what was really disappointing to me is when I worked at the Pally Center, which is the Museum of Television and uh, Media in New York and Los Angeles. When I moved here, I wanted to be I just wanted to volunteer. So I sent an email. They're like, yeah, okay, whatever. I showed up in a suit. Everybody thought I was the head of Fox or like one of the or an agent. And I'm like, I'm just here to help. They're like, well, A, don't ever wear a suit again because you look like someone you shouldn't be. Um, But I got to work with so many different casts. I found most of the younger talent on the CW. I don't know how they've been trained to be in this industry, but I, I really, it's how you're raised. And I think a lot of these kids were just given fame really fast and didn't know how to handle it. And they were just rude to everybody, mm. very dismissive. And it's like, my job is to put you on the stage or actually get you to in front of your fans why would you impede what I'm supposed to do? I'm being very kind to you. I don't know why you're being rude. So yeah. that's that's just a generic. I'm not going to give specific names. Yeah, that makes sense. Plus, that was so long ago. Um, you could you could answer the inverse as well, like somebody who is just a like the complete opposite of a prick, like like someone who amazing. I adore. Yeah. Oh. Well, there's, there's uh, David Hurwitz, who's the showrunner and has done a lot of stuff. He was one of the creators of Fear Factor. And he also, um, I worked with him on several shows. I worked with him on Don't, the show that we did with Adam Scott. Mm-hmm. I worked with him on a Mormon game show for families called uh, Battle of the Ages. And he's just, he's the perfect person. He has a great appreciation for talent. He has a great appreciation for creativity. He's very open to people's opinions. He's not he's not stoic. He's not like it's my way or the highway. He's just very open. And he also proved to me that good work can still be done in Hollywood just because you're like, cause I have so many friends that are like, I can't do this job anymore. It's stressful. I'm stressed mm. out. This person's yelling. And I'm like, I fortunately, and I do, I do swear on this and I don't swear often. I have never had a job here that I'm like, I don't want to be here. There are people who are difficult, but it never made me want to leave the industry or leave the job. Um, that might say something about you. I, I mean, that's well, often. I, I think case. I think I can absorb a lot, and I think yeah, I can absorb negative stuff too. Mm-hmm. Um, I think as I get older, less things affect me. Where it's like, you know, what? it doesn't matter. We're all gonna die soon. Or yeah. It's like, why am I worrying about that? Or why am I worrying about a mm-hmm. bill that was like fifty dollars and not fifty-five dollars? It's like let other people worry about that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I would say it's, it's a higher percentage of good people. Uh, Sarah Paulson, one of the greatest people ever. Wendy McClendon Covey, excellent. Melissa Peterman, great. All of these people that we've worked with on 
various projects are are so lovely in person and they know that they're big but they don't treat anybody as if they are big they're just mm -hmm. like they're normal conversation people um another prick that comes to mind unfortunately because i when i first moved here i, I worked on a weekly sketch comedy show and the person who ran that sketch comedy show became a little uh too egocentric because he was starting to degrade the actors and and saying things were not good enough and my job was to book the talent and i was the liaison between the actors and the producers mm -hmm. and so i got to the point where it's like i don't want to be here anymore and then i was accused that the only reason i was on the show was to secure other work with celebrities which side note i never ended up working with any of the celebrities i booked so i don't know where mm -hmm. that came from and this is very hollywood and i ended up getting let go from the show and replaced with the head producer's girlfriend who was like oh i think i can do that well go right ahead <laughs> and then the show collapsed and i'm not going to say hey good but know yeah. how to treat people because what goes around comes around and it's not it's not great and i was in charge of all celebrity bookings and believe me leaving that show i ended up working with bigger and bigger and bigger celebrities so if i actually did work on that show the the caliber of comedy that i would have brought into the show would have been amazing didn't have the chance to oh well. yeah the other question and i'm yeah. gonna give lou a little more time sure. was if you could produce anything a true passion project especially what might you like to do and that i think that's an interesting question probably hard it's to unfortunate answer because i can't this was my passion project all the time and i can't do it because of a certain reason i've always even when i was younger i wanted to do a sit down one-on-one -on -one interview with each one of my four grandparents I still have the notes. I still have the bullet points in one of my folders of everything I wanted to ask them. And I never got the chance to. And I think that's my biggest regret because I just, I really wanted to hear from people of a different generation, what their pains, their struggles, their joys and stuff were. Because I think with grandparents, you have a very surface connection to them, but you don't really know them as people. And you don't know them as like vital human beings when they were younger or what they struggled with in school or what mm -hmm. their what their wedding day was like, what was, you know, what it was like when their, when their parents passed away, like all these things I just came up with and I never had the chance to do it. I think the only way I can redeem myself is if I do the same with my parents or maybe, or maybe my aunts and uncles, like really spend time with them. I had, I had the taste of it a little bit when I used to produce the, the video, like the family videos mm -hmm. where I got them to do funny things, but it was like, this is sitting down with someone who I know as a relative, but never like this, never just like we're two people talking. It's not cousin Johnny, or it's not your grandson, or it's not your brother. It's just two humans having a conversation. And that that's always been my passion project and my biggest regret that I never followed through on it. That still bothers me to this day. But if, if you want me to answer a question of something that I would produce now that I could, mm more children's programming i think you, we need more children's programming where we're really showing um you know we're, i i got to work on double dare with kids i got to work on american ninja warrior with kids i got to work on uh, again the show i mentioned before battle of the ages and i just think kids are fascinating i also when i worked for pbs i worked on a show for 18 years in the classrooms of of public uh public schools in new jersey mm -hmm. so just being around youth all the time I still say this in my interviews now for Jeopardy when I talk to teachers, because I say, okay, I say, I usually say to a teacher, I'm like, well, what 
what grade do you teach? And if it's, you know, K through eight, then I always lean in, even though there's no kids around them. I'm just like, which grade is your favorite? Be honest, like, be honest. And then they always break down. They're like third graders. They won't shut up or sixth graders. They're not full adults yet, whatever. And I always said, first graders are the greatest people to talk to. First graders will sell their parents out. will tell every secret that's in their house. And will also really tell you how you look, what you're wearing. Your shirt is weird. Your glasses are odd. Why do you have gray hair? They're, they're, they're tiny adults. And I, I can spend an entire day talking to first graders. <laughs> and that, that's what I just, I think that's always what I wanted to do. And I think when I leave the industry, I want to go back and mentor and I want to teach. And I want to, like, I want, I want to deal with youth. I always mm -hmm. did. Now I'm, now I'm deciding between three questions to ask. Okay, you go ahead. Uh, I think I'll go one, with this one. At one. A time. As now, I know you don't have kids of your own, but you've observed a lot of parents. And I know of. Sorry, that's. Good word. <laughs> yeah, really, I shouldn't have made the assumption. Um, <laughs> that's rare. Yeah, right. <laughs> the uh, but you've observed a lot of a lot of kids and. And you're really, you know, you're like the great uncle and all that stuff, the fun uncle and the cool uncle and stuff. And you've observed a lot of families. And do you have any parenting advice, generic or specific? I, I think, I think specific is listen, listen to your kids. Cause sometimes there's a lot of, there's a lot of thoughts going on in their head. And I think having an open dialogue, if you talk to a child, like a peer to an extent, You'll, I think you'll get more trust. I think you'll get a better reaction if you really listen to them. And a lot of times, you know, some kids, depending on the age, will be very whiny or annoying where the easy out is just like, I, I can't, like, I can't do this right now. But I think when they're at that, again, my opinion, I have no, I have no scientific proof or experience with this. But I think if a kid is hyper or emotional, that's where you really should sit down and talk with them. I think meet them at their level. Um, my disadvantage, and I learned this very quickly, is because um, older, gray, tall, and a little intimidating is that when I meet a kid, and it could be a five-year-old, it could be a 14-year-old, is I always had to remember to lower my body to eye level with them. If I had to sit on the ground and talk to somebody, I do it. If I needed to bend down more and talk, because I think lording or standing over somebody is very intimidating and very scary. And, and my father alone has a very commanding voice that at times you always get confused where it's like, is he yelling at me? No, mm. it's just his voice. So I, I'm starting to get that voice and I'm being really cognizant about how loud I am with people or how authoritative I am or how, you know, you have to, you have to humor people too. Because again, working on a game show, it's like, you're having fun. This is good. This is life-changing stuff. And I want you to have a blast the whole time. So I think my conclusion with this question is, listen it's it's all about listening it's about what what do they need and maybe they don't need anything and maybe you know i know between boys and girls a lot boys just want to express girls guys don't necessarily want the advice girls do girls no no i, I i'm sorry let me repeat that because it's the opposite i think if we reach out we want help if a female reaches out they just need to talk. They don't want your opinion. Don't tell them what they're supposed to do. They're just like, I just need to express myself. That's been my experience. Well, that's good marriage um, advice a lot as of well. <laughs> huh? So that's good marriage advice as well. No, it, no, it is too, because it's like, it, like if your wife or your loved one comes to you and it's like, I have a problem internally, it's like, don't give them a solution or say what they're thinking is like, maybe you should look this way. That's the last thing they want. They just, they need somebody to absorb 
their uh, their pain or elation at that moment, depending what it is. Did you have a motto when you were younger, or do you now? Hmm. Well, the new one, I mean, the new one now, just because it's a little comedic and it makes me feel better, is everyone's like, how, like, if they say, how are you? I'm like, alive and upright. That's yeah. enough for me. <laughs> and then I'll just walk away. Let them figure out what's <laughs> Alive and upright. That's, that's not a great motto, but it is, it's a nice way of not going into too many details. Um, I hate mottos. I hate, like, work hard, play hard. Like, th those, those really annoy me. Didn't you have something when you were young, like in, in grade school or middle school or something about like uh, being an individual or something like that? Like, and you look like Jeff, you just look like Jeff Goldblum for a minute there. Great. They're off into the distance again. That was good. Yeah, there it is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like something about being- that's my, that's my homage to Mr. Goldblum. Something about being different or something or, I don't know. I mean, I've always been different. I mean that could that could have been that could have been a talented and gifted quote that came out of nowhere in fourth Possibly. grade. But I I don't I don't think there's been a motto that's like propelled me through life and through my yeah. career. I well, here's the okay. It's not a motto, but I've always said the day that I wake up and dread going into work is the day that I should leave. I've always said that if I get up and I'm like I can't do this anymore, then go. Just, it's not, it's not worth it. It's not worth the stress. So I, like I said, it's not really a motto, but it is, it's, it's definitely a life, uh, source or life impetus for me to remember. It's like, okay, life could be crazy today, but I still like going into work. I still like seeing people. I still like producing. And when mm -hmm. that stops is when I know that I, that has to stop. Cause I, I don't, I think once I'm fed up with something, it's very difficult to convince myself to not think that way even if other people say okay you're being crazy it's like no when it's time to go and i think as you get older too you realize i don't need this anymore and i want to curse and it's like i don't need this anymore yeah you know there there also was if i can if i can uh share something with you and i don't know if i actually ever showed this to you which i'll read it really quick hang on sure it was a quote i saw when i turned 50 and that has been the quote that I have followed every single day. And you'll understand when I say it. Mm. It's, it's brilliant because you're also approaching 50 in a couple of years and you might feel, I, you might feel that now what I'm about <laughs> to read. Okay. It does have cursing in it. So I'll just, I won't say the full curse. I'll just say whatever. Feel free. I don't know who wrote this. So kudos to whoever, you know, shout out to whoever did this. <clears throat> okay. You know what's great about being 50? I'll quit any effing job at the drop of a hat. I'll dump any bad relationship at the turn of a dime. I can tell a complete stranger to go F himself if they're an arrogant asshole. There's a certain pride in knowing I've been poor, good people love me and accept me, and the best compliment I've ever gotten is, at the end of the day, my honor is more important to me than money, success, or what emotionally inept people think of me. That hit me so hard. It's like, you know what? Then I think as we get older and we get more comfortable and we're like a little bit more financially set, mm -hmm. that you look at everything and it's like, I don't need this. I don't want to be part of it. And I think it it also feeds into what our nation is like now. It's a massive exodus of jobs. People are just like, I could have died last year. What am I doing in this job? I'm going to quit. 
I want to focus on this. I don't want to live in New Jersey. I want to live in Hawaii. I want to do this. I want to get divorced. I want to have children. It's like people, people are exhausted. They're fed up. And I think they're trying to grab, they're holding on to their life again. It's like, I don't want to spend the, the last part of my life being miserable or frustrated. And I'm not saying that's me. I'm okay. I'm okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that quote is really powerful because in my head, I'm like, I don't care. I don't care what you think. And you know, I think I think that makes it in some ways that makes it easier to be happy. Yes, because, I, I agree. Yeah, because you don't have any pressure to. Uh, I mean, I, to, I to have lie to, you know, you don't have any. No, no, you don't have the pressure to pretend that correct. you're enjoying something if you're not. But it sounds oh, no, like you're very vocal. I'm very vocal. I'm, I've started to. I've started to. Got. I, I've said this to people at other parties too, where I'm like, I wish I was more like my dad because my dad is just at any party when he's done. It's like he would usually turn to mom and go, I'll be in the car. And that was enough. That was enough to set up. Now mom could have taken 45 minutes to say goodbye to everybody. Yeah. But dad is like, I'm done. I got everything I needed for now. It's time to go. He doesn't overstay his welcome. He is not the last person to leave a party. And I'm starting to feel that way. It's like, I don't, if someone goes, oh, we're having this great party. It goes from eight to 12. I don't want to know the timing. I'll show up at eight. And then if I feel at eight 30, I've gotten enough. It's, I don't need to be here. I don't know. I, maybe it's a stubbornness. Maybe it's just like a different it's, it's, I want to, it's not selfish. It's selfless. I think at some point where it's like, I don't, I'm good. I'm good. That's how I feel for, for most time. And, and I don't know from like you, I don't want to turn the interview back on you. But as we get older, do you see a change in me? Do you see where it's like, I'm a little bit more relaxed, things don't bother me as much? Or do you still see me as like, no, you've always been this way kind of thing? No, I see it. I see it. And yeah. uh, I see I see the confidence. I see the, uh, I think it's an earned, like an earned confidence, which is different. Right. Um, and I, th I see you with your feet, like firmly on the ground in terms of, uh, where your life is you're you're they are in slippers currently you, just like so you know. and there's the age thing too now i wear slippers you're <laughs> you're standing i guess in the in the profession yeah i mean it was a bit of a struggle i think to get where you are of course and uh because you know moving moving across the country and like not really having anything lined up or any yeah. connections the, the first the plus first being a little plus being a little bit older probably than a lot of the people who are uh like targeting the same positions i would and and now like now all of that you see to your advantage and the whole pbs background you see that as the strength but uh i'm sure that actually things, got me the job yeah you know, i'm sure when think. things were tenuous though and like you know up in the air it was that was hard to uh those are probably just hard times i would imagine when when i got the interview for jeopardy I, um, uh, Lisa, it's Lisa and Rocky are the supervising producers. They've been there mm -hmm. since day one. These, these are like the king and the queen of Jeopardy. They've been there since day one. Mm -hmm. I had my interview with Rocky and Lisa and Mike Richards, who was the executive producer up until the mm -hmm. point of the controversy. And now he's no longer the EP, but I'm still, but he's the person who gave me the job. So I'll always mm -hmm. be headed to him. It's, it's a very gray area when people talk about him because I'm like, I know him and I know of him. Um, but that's not the point of the story. When I was talking uh, about contestants and how I see people, Lisa had asked at one point, she's like, what did you do up until moving to Los Angeles? And I said, I worked for PBS for 20 years. And she goes, 
it shows. She goes, there's something that you have that no other person I've ever met in this job has. Mm. You have a deep, deep caring for human beings. You want people to do well. And I said, honestly, I was also taught this by my mentor that we're in the life-changing business. And that's weird to say, but then when you say, when you really say it out loud, we do, I change people's lives. I give them the opportunity to do great and have great things happen. You know, you look at um, these mega champions on, on Jeopardy. You know, if I, if I have an interview with an Amy Schneider type or a, a Ryan Long type, and all of a sudden they're on stage and they do well, it feels like they're one of my kids. It's weird. It just, I, I feel very affected by them. And mm -hmm. in the interview, Lisa's like, this is, this is what we need on the show. We need somebody who has heart, who has like a beating presence. And Karina, who I, I adore as a contestant producer, she's very, she's super focused. She's head, she's head and I'm heart. So that's why we're a good match. Not saying she doesn't care about people. She, she's very, she knows how to fit what in what box. Did we do this, then this, that she's very methodical. And sometimes I'm not, that's not my strength. So we complement each other, but I think that's what got me the job. I think PBS definitely taught me uh, to really look at people as vital human beings. These are these are living, breathing things that are coming into our world for one day. They don't yeah. know what we do every day. They're terrified. They're excited. They're they're confused. They have so many questions, and it's like we just have to guide you. We have to make sure you look good, you sound good, and you play the game. I just want I just want to like make you look good mm. and not leave them alone because they have this. This is this is the most special thing that Jeopardy contestants have. They got on the show because of their brain. Yeah. So don't don't mess it up. Don't inundate them with too many rules. Don't like get them to the point that it throws them off their game because it's 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 and you know, Jeopardy contestants are at a different level. Some of them, some of them are intensely smart. Some of them are spectrum smart, smart. Some of them, you know, it's like, it's all different kinds. Mm -hmm. It's it's the safe haven for nerds, as I was taught. And I yeah. love that because it is nerds unite. Come on over. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I have uh, two quick things. Sure. Your mentor's name. And then also uh, is Karina, is, is she the woman who does the same job as you? Correct. And what do you uh, what do you admire about her, or what do you like about working with her? Just curious. Sure. And and also, okay. who is your mentor? Okay, so my mentor, uh, when I started working for NJM Public Television directly out of college in 1992, the first person who gave me a chance as an intern was Sherry Hope Culver. Now, Sherry Hope Culver has been in the industry for way longer than I have. Um, she was my boss at the public television station. She went on to run her own public television station in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. and now she is an adjunct professor at Temple University and travels the world talking about children's programming. She I think she just got a Fulbright scholarship to continue her studies, so it's amazing. Um, we're still friends to this day. Mm -hmm. She brought her students to LA this year, and so she always asked me to come and lecture, so I come mm -hmm. in. I, I, this time I brought the Emmy from Jeopardy, I have never seen people with more selfies and it's like, here I am. And I'm an Emmy winner. And like, just be careful. Don't, please don't break it. That's the only rule I have. But it's like, and I hope all of you have the, the esteemed opportunity to hold one of these. But for now, it's a very cool uh, show and tell prop to at yeah. least say, this is what I've done. And I think our mutual respect for each other has grown so much. So, you know, because again, I started as like, what was I 19 or 20? 
as an intern and now I'm 52. I, I've had a friendship with her for 30 something years. Yeah. And she's the person who believed in me and she's the person who gave me a chance. So anytime I can repay her with anything from kindness to just having a conversation or mentor, her daughter is now going into the industry. So I was mentoring her. So mm -hmm. it just feels like this pay it forward kind of thing. Um, she's amazing. She's an amazing, amazing woman. She cares so much. And that she, she gave me the love of children's programming because of her. Uh, regarding Karina Nushu, who is my co-contestant producer, I'm actually her co-contestant producer because she's been there for 18 years. So she has so much history. She's incredibly thorough. She knows everything about the show inside and out. She cares so much about Jeopardy. I mean, why would you be at any place for more than 15 years if you didn't care about the place? I've learned a lot from her. I've learned um, the show runs differently than other shows I've been on. And she's been a really good guide. I can also see that when you join a show, and I do know this from experience of being at the public television station for 20 years, is that, you know, there's a good and a bad with working with people for decades. Mm -hmm. You kind of, it's like a family. There are people you like, there are people you don't like. There are people that you warn others and say, be careful. This is like one of their bad days or one of their good days. So she's guided me on the intricacies <laughs> of the emotional level of, of Jeopardy at days. And again, Jeopardy is not unique. Every show has those things. Jeopardy does not stand out for any other reason yeah. um, than just what the show it is. But she's been, she's incredibly, incredibly good. She's very thorough and she's very um, monotonous in a good way because when you have to give rules, you have to make sure that you're saying the same thing as what you did yesterday, today, because some contestants are held over to a different day. And if something has changed where they're like, oh, wait, you didn't say that yesterday, then it, it upsets the whole thing. She, her, before she went to Jeopardy, she worked on Family Feud and she was also a stage manager. So stage manager is a person who's in control of how the day runs. That's why she's good. She's a good, she's a general, but not with the meanness part of it. It's like she knows what needs to go where to make things efficient. I mean, we just had a meeting before talking to you about like some changes and she always has good ideas. She has very, she's very solution oriented. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we get jaded. There are things where it's like, that can't be done. And then you take a step back and you're like, eh, maybe, yeah, maybe we can do it. We'll just tweak this one or two thing. Um, but it's, it's been an honor. And, and since I've joined Jeopardy, she and I have gotten the uh, privilege to be placed on the Emmy nominations because I don't think they've ever listed contestant producers in 38 years. And in the two years that I've been there, both she and I have won back-to-back -back Emmys. And that's something definitely to be proud of and something to brag about. And uh, Friday night when we won the second one, she has never been to an award show. Mm. So sitting next to somebody who has, the only thing I can compare it to is taking your kid to Disney for the first time. She was just bright-eyed and everything was a spectacle. And winning just made everything better. You know, I've, I've been down that road before with winning and you do get a little jaded, but like living vicariously through her joy made Friday night fantastic. It really did. I have a great respect for her. Awesome. I've, I've been very lucky in this industry. I really have yeah. with the people I work with. Yeah. And the people I work for. Yeah. I heard she has good taste in, uh, in television too. <laughs> oh, that's right. Um, that's the David Lynch connection. The, um, she him twice and she loves to talk about it. So yeah. hopefully one day. When, when we have live audiences back and you can make it out here, I mean, I would love for the two of you to meet, even if it's yeah. on a Zoom or something. Yeah, that'd be yeah. cool. Um, and I should, I should say, not that there's going to be much of an audience, but you and I planned this 
before the Emmy thing happened. So it's not, yeah. like, it's not like I decided you were worthy of talking to just because you have a trophy. But, you know, I, I was already interested sure before is. that. I mean, that um, actually, that's last year's. The new one comes in in a couple, in a couple weeks. But um, I want to ask you one or two more questions. Sure. And then, uh, so this one uh, might be a little weird, but if you were ever in front of the camera or front stage in some manner, in the uh, communication industry mm -hmm. in some way or another, what could you imagine yourself possibly doing? Well, or even would want to do? Camera. I have been in front of the camera in my career and that was when I worked at PBS and I did fundraising. I mm -hmm. was live on TV three times a week, three hours a night, no script, not making stuff up. You had to remember certain things. You had to remember the phone number. You had to remember that $32 got you an umbrella <laughs> yeah. or this is the John Tesh concert that's coming up next or trying to remember <laughs> that you're pretending to cook because it's summertime, but the food slipped off the grill and you didn't know how to react to it. So it's all that really got me prepared for live TV. And again, what I said in the beginning of this interview is knowing what other people do. I have great respect for people in front of the camera because I know what it's like. It's something I don't enjoy. Mm -hmm. Mainly because of the trauma, the first time that I did fundraising, that my co-fundraising uh, co person whispered to me 30 seconds before we went on air, and he went, you know, 3 million people are going to watch this right now. And I just thought, why did you say that to me? Because I just see one camera person, one sound person, and you. And I don't know if I still have that footage, but I just remember it was definitely like deer in headlights. Hi, welcome to, and it was like, what happened to you? And I'm like, you destroyed me. I didn't know how to react. <laughs> and then the second time I did it, I did it with my mentor, Shari. So that it was like, there was, a, there was a comfort level there that made it very exciting. I, I actually liked doing stuff on there. I don't want to be an on-air person. I way prefer behind the scenes, but I definitely encourage people who want to do stuff in front of the camera to really excel at the craft. But yeah. I will never want, I don't ever want to do front of camera stuff again. That was like, that was enough for me. Maybe you'll do some sort of thing like this though. Maybe you'll do like a, yeah. maybe you'll host an interview show. Well, see that. Well, because that's you have, you have enough, you have enough actual connections to like maybe make a dent if you wanted to. Yeah. You know? I've done a couple podcasts with my friends and that was great. Cause it was, again, it was just a conversation. Um, unfortunately, my iPod got stolen out of my car that had all the, all the stuff and all the people who did the podcast don't have the the audio anymore uh i think so, so. i might have one or two things there you know it was a lot of stuff sorry I, have, I might have one or two things downloaded actually that you were on <laughs> let me know if you do because i was going to make clips for fun like oh, uh, i would love to oh my god i would love to hear it you I know, know. eating like crazy food or one or something like that you know that was food with Findel. that was yeah. great okay i guess that's considered on camera stuff and that was fun <laughs> because two of my really good friends in the industry uh, Mandel, who was a, an executive at Nickelodeon, and Phil, who's a news director, I'm sorry, news producer for CBS. Um, they're also married, married couple. Um, they started to do these little YouTube videos where they were eating like strange and foreign foods. And I'm like, I want to be a guest. Can I be a guest? And they're like, we don't really do guests, but yeah, sure. And then I was a guest six times. So they're just like, no, you were so much fun to do this with. You know, and then I became obsessed that every, still to this day, yesterday, in fact, I was in a supermarket and I saw <laughs> ketchup flavored ice pops. And so what I do now is I take a photo and I send it to the two of them and I'm like, yeah, thumbs up or thumbs down. And they're like, don't come over if you have those, like, don't please. <laughs>
but it's but now it's like we have a good connection over weird foods yeah i was always into weird foods even before then you know that from like yeah weird, you're kind of famous for that and yeah. weird, you know weird foods and weird gifts but like do i want to host um, a show no can i do a podcast and just like do interviews again when i do zooms for jeopardy i have to be a host so to speak all the time yeah yeah that's weird i never really thought about on camera stuff and that's all i do actually is on camera Ooh, that's weird. I never now now tomorrow I'm gonna be all messed up from those. Give me a give me a quick interviewing tip that you've picked up since I mean that's pretty much all you do is interview people. Uh, regarding or, oh well I mean that again it's all about listening. Number one, mm -hmm. the other thing is is that for game shows specifically, I always look for energy, personality, someone who's not necessarily okay. Here's here's a great example, and I should I should send you the video because it's awesome. Uh, for Jeopardy specifically, we always tell people, you know, how you should dress, how you present yourself. If you're going to be in your house, make sure there's nothing inappropriate behind you, or there's no kids running in and out of your husband shirtless walking in saying, where's my underwear? You know, like, remember, stay really focused is Jeopardy. We want to, we want to hold a high standard. So it's always like, make sure you're, you're sitting upright, you're well lit. So the Zoom sessions have nine contestants in it. So it's me, another person in my department who, when I'm hosting, they're watching and taking notes because I can't possibly do all of that at the same time. Mm -hmm. And then another person who operates the board of how you're playing. So nine contestants, eight contestants pop up. We're waiting for the ninth contestant. She doesn't know how to use her Zoom, which I forgive people because some people, you know, it's difficult with the technology. She pops up on screen. She is laying down in her bed. She shows up. Like if you were to reveal here, let me do, let me do a dramatic reveal. Right? <laughs> this is exactly <laughs> not going to be great, but she had her pen and everything, <laughs> and she played like that the whole time. <laughs> and ever all the other eight people were just like they couldn't <laughs> say it out loud, but they were just like, "What is what is happening?" Yeah. So if, if you're getting interviewed, be presentable and be ready to interview it's not that long out of your life yeah. i i got to go back to karina karina uses the phrase she goes a very wise taylor swift said shake it off <laughs> anything bothering you let it go especially if you're playing the game and like clues are going by and you're like i got that one wrong all of a sudden thousands of dollars are going by and you're losing so it's like let it go yeah, yeah, yeah when you're yeah. going into this that's why we pride ourselves on being fun and happy because we want your we want you to feed off our energy and that's the thing too, is that when you're, when you're doing an interview, if you need to always be polite and be on, you have to be honest, especially if you're doing an interview and technology goes down, it's like, you have to think not only as an, as an interviewer, but as an editor, where can I cut that? Or where can I make an edit that makes it look seamless? Or where can I mm -hmm. add something that doesn't embarrass somebody or make me look bad at certain points? Um, so listening is huge. And making sure that you're hitting your your bullet points, or at least again, if you're training somebody for casting, that's different. If mm -hmm. we're just doing an interview, it's like feed off of those keywords and say, like if you just said orange, for example, orange could trigger Florida. Oh, so the last time we went to Disney, what was your favorite part? So that you start to make these connections. It doesn't necessarily have to follow anything linear. If it's just a dialogue with people. But if it's if it's a, a finite amount of information that you have to get through, just make sure you have your checklist and you and you do it all. It's a lot, and and game shows or yeah. general or rules, it's a lot of talking. 
<clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Well, I have I have one thing left on my checklist, sure. but uh, but before I, I use your checklist, very good. Before I ask you that, sure. I would like to ask you, um, was this? How did you How did you enjoy being on I the uh, receiving end? I loved it. I loved it because I, because that's the thing too. I don't I don't think I've gotten to the point where I'm afraid of anything, and and that's a good and a bad thing because I mean, it's a it's a dialogue. I mean, you're my you're my biological brother. You're, we're blood related, mm -hmm. but I was talking to you as if you were just any interviewer asking questions. I never and I don't think at any point I was just like, Aunt, don't like we're not going to talk about that. Yeah. It doesn't matter to me. It's just, it's having a dialogue. And if it's eventually going to be used for something where people are learning or just for entertainment, it's great. I'm, I'm honored to even be asked. I did notice, I think I only asked you like once very briefly, like, wh like, what is this? And you're like, nah, just don't worry about it. But the old me would be like, well, what kind of questions are you going to ask? Do I have to research it? Do I need to have yeah. a, a visual for you? Like, I don't know. What, what is this? I don't care anymore. I no, I that's my motto there it is <laughs> i care but i don't care anymore yeah you say that all the time at work we're like i care <laughs> but i don't care yeah yeah that works in all aspects of life i care yeah but I, I can care. relate trust me yeah i mean yeah for sure yeah i mean even this th there's no reason for me to be doing this kind of stuff but it's just mainly out of boredom and it, like if i don't give myself <laughs> a if i don't give myself like a little project to do Sure. Yeah. I have, no, I get you know, it. Then it's going to be house housework, but you know that's their that's their regard. Wait, are you, wait, are you summing this interview up by saying <laughs> this was your way of getting out of housework? I'm very pretty flattered. Much, yeah, that's pretty much. The... It's, it's also late, yeah. before, so you have to do housework now after eleven o'clock. Yeah. Twelve people told me no, so I asked you, and then uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, obviously, obviously, if you do upload this, share it with me. I would love to. I would love to see it again. Yeah, or just for sure. The reactions. Definitely, yeah. Matt Marino, and I know Lou will respond. Yeah, Two fans. I know. And it, maybe it's a nice little artifact for uh, to look at 10, 12 years from now. Well, there. Years. See, there it is. You just did what I wanted to do and yeah. didn't follow through. So I have a great appreciation for you actually doing this. And you know what? It's actually inspired me that maybe the thing is because I felt so comfortable doing this with you, it's almost like maybe the, maybe the conversation should be an interview with you and Julie and Gina, just like my own, my own siblings. Mm. You know, it's like, I, I've lived so far away for so long, not just in Los Angeles, like in college and stuff, I missed out on so many things. And I think it's a nice reconnection. And look, I always brag that me and my siblings are close. We're not yeah. close that we talk to each other every single day, but I think, I think when we are together, there's no strife and there's no like, there's no stress. I am so looking forward to coming home. I need this really badly. Yeah. And I'm not trying to be emotional, but it's like last time I was home, I was sick and it was just not, mm. it just felt like I have not seen people. I have not hugged people. I've have not been around people in so long. And I think we need that as human beings. I, ju I just need the connection. And I'm sure we're going to share that bed again. <laughs> so please bring. Please bring that machine that played the the ocean sounds because <laughs> it gave me really good night sleeps. Did um how how do, how are people going to think about you when they talk about you when you're uh when I die? Yeah, I guess so. Or when they or 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 when you're when your brain doesn't work anymore or something, <laughs> which could be any day now, <laughs> any any minute. Like um, like not. I guess I'm saying like 
not how do you want to be talked about how do you think you'll actually be thought of I, you know it's really weird i thought about this a couple months ago it's like and and what a selfish statement to make because it's like when i die are people going to show up when i die what are people going to say what is my eulogy going to be like are people going to say i was funny i was kind i was um the thing that i've gotten my entire life that people when i hear people talk about me they're like he's so fast on his feet he's quick-witted and people have said for a lot of time it's like you can almost see in my eyes the rolodex that's spinning like if you just say something like carrot i'll immediately start you, you would think i was joan rivers with a million jokes i'm just like okay what can i say that's funny about a carrot <laughs> and sometimes i do it to, to like reduce the stress because if it's an uncomfortable situation it's like I, it, just something comes up so i hope people would say i was really fast on my feet i was creative i was kind i was funny i was smart i was caring i was um uh present when someone really needed me that i was like there for people um you know it's really weird i would i almost want to flip that question and ask my seven nieces <clears throat> As weird as that sounds, although I would never, I would never want to say to a kid, it's like, okay, so say I was dead. What, what would you tell people about your <laughs> uncle? But I'm really curious. I'm curious yeah. what people would say. You know, people are always nice because I'm nice to people, you know, because I, 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 I almost want to hear, I live far away. I don't talk to my nieces enough. I, I, I think, and that's clearly my fault. And because I'm busy, but I never think you're busy enough that you can't pick up a phone or do a Zoom or play. Like playing games with them was such a great joy to me because it was a connection to them. And then it just stopped because everyone got busy or everyone went back to normal life. But I almost, I almost need to hear from one of the nieces say, I don't know you because I don't see you that much, you know? And that, that actually hurts me a little bit to even say that out loud. You know, I just, I, I feel very disconnected. But now mom now i'm turning into mom I'm like but i'm okay i'm okay i'm okay yeah but i'm not okay but i'm okay you know so it's i just i, miss I guess in a couple of weeks we'll, we'll make all that happen yeah i just i miss home a lot yeah i guess that's that's part of the uh that's part of the hollywood story as well missing yeah. home is that pretty much a common uh, a common trope for people it's a um well, you know what? A majority of the people who live and work here are not from here. Yeah. It's very, it's, it's almost, I call them a unicorn. If I meet somebody, I'm like, where are you from? They're like, oh, from here. Mm. Oh my God, I found <laughs> one. Yeah. You know, and then and like my, one of my best friends, Kami, who's from here, she's always like, yeah, you're from out of town. Please, you're an out of town or stop saying that LA people are rude. It's you that are rude. <laughs> you ruin it for us. And I'm like, yeah, she gives yeah. me great perspective on, on not to just immediately negate a city that you're unfamiliar with just because it's like oh people in LA are rude and yeah. people in New York are just mean um when I first moved here I asked one of my friends the, the second time I moved here not the original time and I said look I need it in one sentence what's the major difference happening right now in LA what's the difference between LA and New York and this person said this to me and every person I tell is they say to me they're like oh can I keep that quote I'm like it's not mine you could take it is in a simple sentence, in New York, when they say F you, it means good morning. And in LA, when they say good morning, it means F you. <laughs> that's pretty and good. And that has, actually, that's not my motto, but that's the yeah. motto that's fueled me the entire time I'm here. Mm. 
because you can go on to a set and you're like, good morning. And they're like, what's wrong? Did we get canceled? What happened? Why are you, what, what's going on? I'm like, it's a nice day out. Yeah, but it's nice every day here. What's going on? And I'm like, okay, what? get out, whatever. Yeah. In New York, it's like, I hate you. I hate your mother, but we're going to work together and it'll be great. They just, they put it out there. You yeah, know what I mean? Got it. So, so yeah. There's going to be five. Go ahead. It's an incredibly exciting city and it's incredibly lonely. Mm. It's, it's even weird to say that because there are days that are just... You know, I know that every day I can go to the beach in 20 minutes. I know I can go outside. I think because of the pandemic, because of work schedules, it's like I don't go outside that much. So when I do, I almost look at, at, it, at it as like it's a special event. It's like I'm going on vacation. And it's like, mm. no, asshole. Sorry about the language. You live here. You can be on vacation every day. Go outside. Yeah. You know, so it's just, I don't know. It's weird. I'm, st I'm still adjusting 10 years later. It'll be 10 years next week. Wow. 10 years. That's weird. Yeah, that weird. is weird. It's been a while. All the Facebook posts are reminding me because yesterday was like my mm. going away party in the backyard. And mm. I'm like, my God, I don't even, I mean, I remember it, but it's like 10 years. Yeah, it's hard to believe. And that's how long, and, and JN has been closed for 11 years. So that's, that's perspective too, because that was like one of my biggest traumas of my life. And it's like, it's such a distance, but I thank, I thank that horrible situation because it gave me what I do now. If I was at NJN, I probably would have just died there. That's it. I'll, I'll, I'm going to yeah. give you five uh, five options here. The fifth, okay. you, the fifth you will add, and I'll just okay. it's I'll put it in TV terms. All right, go. So it's about how you see yourself in life. All right, do you see yourself more as a character, as an author, as a director, as a producer, or something else? I see myself ultimately as a mentor and I think I got the mentoring bug from Sherry because it, throughout my career, I have mentored so many students and so many younger people to get into the industry. When I worked at NJN, I mentored 12, yes, 12 different students over the 20 years I were there, I was there and every single one of them work in the industry. And I do not take credit for that. I just, I, I love the fact that I was able to, uh, tell somebody keep going if they felt doubtful to embrace what you want to do. It's a very rare breed, although it feels like there's a lot of us in this industry. There are some that rise to the top because of their heart and because of what they really want to focus on. It's not necessarily always about the money or the power or the celebrity. It's about doing good work. It's about resting your head at the end of the day and not saying, boy, I feel great. You just say, today was a good day. I changed three people's lives. I, I saw when I worked on Let's Make a Deal, I saw someone dressed as a hamburger. And next thing I know, they won $50,000 or they won a trip around the world. They were a hamburger three, three hours ago. And yeah. now it's a, it, that's a weird example to give, but I mean, I actually dealt with people who dressed as hamburgers. Um, but yeah, I, I think definitely a mentor because I think when I start to, when I start to wind down from this industry, that's why I want to teach. That's why I want to talk about I have real life skills. When I adjunct uh, professored at, is that, did I use that phrase right? When I was an adjunct professor yeah. at the college I graduated from, I didn't get into the job because I had a master's degree. It's because I had life experience. They're like, you've been working in the industry for 10 years. You're perfect to do this because you can tell these students exactly what's expected in a newsroom or on location or writing a script. 
Yeah. And so that's why I did it for so long because it was just, it was a night, it was an outward extension of what I did every day. And I know that my experience in college were a lot of jaded, angry professors who were in the industry and didn't succeed. And that was my education that I'm like, mm. I don't want to do that to other people. I want to let them know, yeah, there's good and bad, but there's also really, really magical things that happen in this world of production and world of television. But yeah, aside from a producer, aside, I was never a director really, but producer, that's what I was going to stick with until you gave me the option. And then I'm like, mentor is definitely what I want to be remembered by. My um, Matt DeLucia, who was one of my students, who uh, at the time he wanted to be a news reporter and he really wanted to work in Philadelphia. And I'm like, he's not as skilled for Philadelphia yet. And I'm like, I've always been told, try, if you can move away to a small market, start small, get known there and then keep moving. And he went and he started, I think he was in like Wheeling, West Virginia or something. And was mm. in a, a, a lead reporter and then moved from there to Maryland and Maryland to Las Vegas and Las Vegas. And now he's in Philadelphia and he's won 13 Emmys as a reporter in Philadelphia. He got exactly what he wanted. And mm. that's what I like about him. And we still have conversations. And whenever one of us wins one, we're like, okay, how many do you have? And it's great because he has, he has 13 local Emmys like in Philadelphia and I have six local Emmys and two uh, daytime. So now I do the math and I'm like, I believe two daytime trump all of your small ones. So it's like, I'm still winning. <laughs> but I, I love to talk to him because he's, he's a very, very well-known and well-respected reporter in Philadelphia. That's the number four market in the yeah. US. It's great. Yeah. Is there, um, is there a question this evening that you wish I asked you or that I should have asked you or that I should now ask you? And if not, that's it. Hmm. Well, like every good interview ends with, do you have any regrets? <laughs> I don't want to ask that. I don't. Okay. I don't. Even, even the bad times in this industry and even bad times in my life, I don't regret it because I've always wanted to. I knew, I kind of knew younger and as I was getting older that I wasn't going to take the traditional route of like getting married and having kids and like a big house and stuff like that. I just knew I was different. I just knew that my path was different and I embraced it. And I said, I don't care what people think about me. I don't care about people saying, you know, even own family members that it's like, well, you're not complete because you're not married or you don't have kids. And it's like, I mm -hmm. always fought that. And I just said, look, you have to accept me for who I am. I, I decided to choose a different way. And, and I think, and it, weirdly enough, it reflects when I come back and visit that it's like, oh, it's uncle California. He gets to like have fun with us and torture us for, and then he goes back to his like life over there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like I said, it's, there's a sadness to it, but I also feel very content. I haven't felt content in a while. And that's a strong word. I feel very content and focused and just waiting to see what the next thing is. You know, do, am I going to do Jeopardy forever? Absolutely not. I, I'm very emphatic about that. I don't want to do Jeopardy forever. I've always, I've always said to friends, I think my real bliss is to, at the end of this career, whatever it is, is just have a little hut where I sell maybe hookah beads and weed at a, at a resort. Because you know what? At the end of my life or the end of my career, I want to be around people who are at their happiest. And I think when people are on vacation or people are out of their own hell, 
why why would anyone not want to do that why would you not want to like it's all about being content and it's about being happy so um, i i hope to get there but i'm working on it and i and as of now i feel good as of today i feel good tomorrow yeah. could be different but who knows yeah you're fine yep you're fine i, mean, I care I but i don't care yeah it's that, i that i think that is my motto now all right. So and I might say that incessantly on vacation, so who knows? So we accomplished at least something today. <laughs> <laughs> we, we scratched the surface. This has been this has been really good. It's been very cathartic for me in a weird way. It just feels good because there's a lot of things I haven't really talked about. And you and you brought stuff out that I think and, and nothing like salacious or secretive. It was just like I don't get to talk about this because I miss teaching and mentoring. Because there's there's no one to teach or mentor right now. It's like I'm learning. So this is this was really I I thank you for asking me to do this seriously thank you. You're welcome. And I thank you. Please so. send my best to the girls and to Christina as well. Are are all of you going to the house? We will all be there. Yep. Right. Okay. Good. I cannot wait. Yeah, it's gonna be awesome. Thank you. Let me know if you need anything else. All right. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Okay. You're it was welcome. a pleasure, and I hope this turns into some nice sort of uh, artifact. Or I'm sure it, it it can't possibly not be amusing. <laughs> at least like 20 years from now, you know, yeah. if not yeah. next week. Yep. So, all right, cool. And I'll talk to you soon. Okay. performed by our staff and crew represented uh, by some of the people behind me um, thank you so much this is all right John. <laughs>